Hello, and welcome to Inside the Nudge Unit, the new podcast from the Behavioral Insights team. My name is Liz Costa. I'm a senior director at the Behavioral Insights team, and I'll be your host today. This is part two of our special 10th anniversary conversation with Professor Richard Thaler, Professor Kath Sunstein, Dr. Maya Shankar, and Professor David Halpin. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I recommend you download that on your preferred podcast platform or at www.bi.team. If you're ready for part two, let's dive straight in. Let me uh, take this opportune time to slightly disagree with what Cass said. You know, one thing he said is, if you're 60% sure, then go for it and do it now rather than later. I'm going to give a different rule of thumb that's not necessarily contradictory to that. And my rule of thumb is, when in doubt, learn. Take every possible opportunity to learn things. And that doesn't mean that you have to run a 16-arm randomized control trial before you do anything, because then we'll get to analysis paralysis. But let's use COVID as a topical example. And the fact that countries all over the world have taken different approaches to dealing with the problem, it's not a controlled experiment, but there are enormous opportunities for learning. And we'd be crazy not to be taking advantage of those in real time. And I worry often that the the people who are designing, let's say, the issue of the day is vaccine rollout, that everybody's going to do that from scratch on based on their best judgments. And we won't set into place the data collection efforts that will help countries do this better in real time. We have a goal of inoculating something like 5 billion people. And that's not going to happen between now and this summer. So there, there are enormous opportunities to learn. And then, you know, in terms of even learning how to deal with pandemics, because this won't be the last one, how did New Zealand do whatever it is it did? And was it luck or was it intervention? So uh, I, I think there, there's, there are lots of ways to learn and uh, randomized trials are one way, but there are lots of other ways. And, and there's no natural place in government where that's happening. It, that, it, it's all sort of scattered around and, um, and it, it, it would be better if there was like a, a center for learning. <laughs> By the way, I think that's a wonderful thalerism. I'm going to add that to the list. A book in its own right, When in Doubt, Learn. Let's cut back to COVID if we might in a minute, but I'm keen to bring Maya back in because you were ready to come in on this question, Maya, around when you reflect on your time, were there some other studies that you would love to have got across the line, but you weren't quite able to do so? And what would that have been? Yeah, definitely. There were so many that we were aspiring for. 
under eight years of Hillary, but that's a counterfactual world that doesn't exist. Uh, I, I will first say, I, I want to echo Cass's sentiments, which is that the UK nudge unit was obviously a tremendous source of inspiration, um, not just for the inception of our team, but also the way that we thought about our work. And I've been delighted to see so many other countries building their own nudge units. So just wanted to, to say a thank you to you and your team for providing that inspiration and also for so warmly welcoming me to number 10 back in 2013 when I was just a lone FTE working on in this space. It was wonderful to have a, a, sport, a support team across the pond. Uh, so I, I feel so uh, grateful to all of you still for that. Yeah, okay. So let me, this is like uh, having, I don't know how to choose my favorite one, but I, I think the one that we were so close to launching a pilot for in Oregon had to do with the way that we disperse unemployment insurance. So the way that it's done in the U.S. is that typically given out as a flat sum over a six-month period. And what you find in terms of motivation to search for new work is that when they initially get on the benefit, usually the benefit is lower than the wages they were making previously. And so you find that there is a spike in motivation to, to find work and return to work because they, they're hit by that loss. But then you do find that naturally over time, people do adjust to their new income levels and you find that motivation wanes. Then at the end of the six-month benefit, you find another surge in motivation because they're about to go from something to nothing, and that's a, a form of motivation. But I think they ran—Richard, um, you'll have to check me on this. I think they, they experimented with this in Hungary, but they found that if you structure the disbursement of unemployment insurance in, in a two-step fashion where you front-load the benefit uh, to those first three months, and then there's a sudden drop-off, say, at the beginning of month four, you can actually inspire— um, a third motivational spike when it comes to searching for work. So you now you got the original one, you've got that one halfway through. Maybe you don't even need the third one because by that point you've returned to work. But yeah, they do find that it can lead to a significant boost. So this was obviously an immensely challenging undertaking. It was never going to be the type of thing that we could just roll out across the board. But we had been partnering with the state of Oregon, had just gotten some waivers uh, to try to just run a, a basic experiment with their UI office in which we tested out the benefits of, of front-loaning the benefit. I was just so eager to see if the result replicated and whether replicated, um, and if it was something that we could bring to the United States at a larger scale. I, I guess one one other one had to do with the the timing with which we give food stamps uh, to low-income families, or SNAP benefits now is is the name of the program. And there was research showing that what happens is, you know, if you give folks, you know, the check, say, at the beginning of the month, you see declining health outcomes later in the month. You see an increase in disciplinary actions in school among kids towards the end of the month. And so there, there's an issue of, of non-smoothed consumption. And so is there a way to smooth consumption, maybe by giving out the benefit biweekly, for example? And this was, again, an interesting one where... Hmm. There were very interesting political considerations, and I'm not really sure it would have made sense for us to actually implement this pilot. And that's because a lot of the activists within the SNAP space said, look, if we find that we can optimize this program and make it more likely that we don't see adverse health outcomes, it might take away from a much broader, more important effort that we have to try to increase the overall amount of the benefit period, because we just feel like that amount is insufficient. And I found that argument super compelling. I remember thinking, yeah, we don't want to optimize something when fundamentally it's insufficient for families to thrive. And if this result would in any way serve as an antagonist for this much broader effort on the Hill, we, we certainly didn't want, want to contribute to that. So that was one of those things where 
if if we get it right, if we get the amount right, it would be interesting down the line for us to uh, experiment with different timing schedules to make sure that uh, families are optimally benefiting from the supplement. Maya, can I draw you in something else? And Richard might want to come back to this too, which is that one of the original ideas in I think it was called Recap, and now Smart Disclosure, after I think the Treasury and others picked it up under that title, was that you know, we should just get more data out, and this would enable all kinds of nudges. And not least, given what you do now, and you reflect back on it, I think in, on both sides of the Atlantic, we struggled, actually, to get that data out and about, and we hoped all kinds of you know, wonderful apps would flow that way. But they were quite slow coming, and I wonder if you might reflect on that, and maybe also what you think the opportunities are now in this sort of space, smarter use of data to enable maybe more personalized apps and nudges and so on. Yeah, it was extremely difficult at the time. Uh, I'll pass it over to Richard right after this reflection, which is, I, I remember working in government and there were so many challenges we faced where if we were able to partner with an expert in the field, right? A Dilavinia type, let's say, right? When it came to the unemployment, unemployment insurance work, it would have meant great, great impact for the government. But we had trouble even sharing data with a memorandum of understanding with academics. Uh, so you can only imagine how hard it is to make some of that stuff public. I, I did see over time during the Obama administration an increasing openness to data, right? There were people at the Office of Science and Technology Policy whose entire jobs were devoted to this end goal. And, and we, there are definitely significant strides made. But yeah, we, we have so much farther to go when it comes to, to data transparency from government. Richard, anything else? Yeah, so Richard, just to remind you, I mean, you may, in fact, I remember sitting with a PM, you as well, with us talking about peanut allergies and so on. If we could give people their data, then all these apps would arise and so on. And we were indeed pushing for release of lots of data and we had a My Data app, but it was still quite slow coming. What do you think? Yeah, so I, I continue to think that there's great opportunity. And yeah, there was this one sort of miraculous victory where we had a five-minute meeting with David Cameron, and there was a law on the books in Britain that said that anyone who's tracking usage data has to be willing to share it with customers in a, quote, accessible format. I think that was the right word. Yeah. And I was trying to convince the PM that we should change one word in that law accessible to machine readable. And then we, our five-minute meeting was done, and I was sitting out in the hall at number 10 at some table I had taken on as my office. And the chancellor wandered by. This, off, this table happened to be outside his apartment. It was George Osborne, that's right, cutting through to number 11, yeah, yeah. And I pitched the idea to him, and... And then miraculously, this law got passed. So there is a law on the books that says that if you're tracking usage data, you have to be willing to share it in a machine-readable way. But I don't think anyone is really enforcing that law. And so I, I think there are great opportunities. And, you know, I'll, I'll give you another example of of a complete failure, for a while after the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, that was created early in the Obama administration, for a couple of years, I was an academic advisor to them. And they had spent years 
devising what they thought of as the perfect mortgage disclosure form. And the recommendations were unbelievably specific, like about which number should appear in which space and in which font. And I was trying to convince them, okay, look, all of this is fine, but just add one sentence, which is, it all has to be also available in a machine-readable format. Then none of this will matter. And I lost that argument, and it's still not the case. And I, I think... You know, I think uh, your team was t telling us how many pages the terms and conditions are from PayPal. And it, what did you say? 87 pages. Yeah, it's just been cut down to 85 to give them credit. <laughs> so, and then, you know, I looked at Venmo, which I think is a, owned by PayPal, and they have their own terms and conditions, and which refer back to PayPal. <laughs> so, you know, there's infinite layers to these. And I, I really think we could change the world fundamentally if we started disclosing things in ways that apps can use. And the, the best analogy is that we can make the world at least as easy as it is to book airline tickets. And when you and I were kids, David, there was an occupation called travel agent. And I'm sure Maya is too young to have ever even heard of such a person. Hey, hey, I've heard of it. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> but you've never used one. And, uh, yes, so, that's fair, Dr. Sleeve. There are probably only a few hundred of those left. And, and that's because most of the data you need is available online. And shopping for a mortgage should be as easy as booking an a airline flight from Chicago to Paris, but it's not. And the stakes are way higher. And that's true of most important things. Richard, if there's any comfort, you know, those early days we worked on the My Data Act, as it was called, I think back in 2011, it was big battles, and you may remember, even on energy products, we would find that there were literally an order of magnitude more energy tariffs than there were companies. Well, you may remember we pushed that we got the um, the QR codes to summarize the data so you could put your phone against it. But very good news, it only took us 10 years, but um, just recently, you know, now that's become sufficiently automated that you can just sign up to an intermediary now, you've got the capability, who will just switch you automatically without you having to do anything. Hooray. Now, now, can we automatically enroll them in that? <laughs> I don't know if that fits with a libertarian paternalism perspective. Uh, that's an interesting one. opt out, David. Okay, fair enough. So moving on to more topical issues, Richard, you've recently been reflecting on one of the biggest issues of our time, encouraging COVID vaccine uptake. How can we encourage uptake in the US and beyond? As we're rolling out the vaccine, and for the first few months, it's a question of who gets it. But at some point, we hope sooner rather than later, we'll get to the point where our concern is that enough people do it. And I, we can talk about all kinds of nudges to get people to do it. The one I like best is issuing some version of a 
health passport, which would be electronic, and it would show that somebody has had both doses of the vaccine. It would have their photo ID, and it would have contact information, and it would be secure. And now I'm going to be a good economist, and you can see me waving my hands, but I'm going to assume that that's doable, and, and I believe that it is. If we had that technology, then lots of people will have a big incentive to get vaccinated because it will be required to get into an airplane or, more important, into a pub and back on campus. I think we have developed vaccines at warp speed, as our president likes to say, but the development of the technology necessary to create these health passports has not imagine if we had put one one hundredth of the intellectual horsepower into this problem. We know we were hoping that these vaccines would come, and for at least several months, we've been quite confident that they're on their way. I wish we were further along. What's going to come next? And the 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 fact that. We haven't solved it yet, isn't a big problem, but I'm hoping that people are working on it very hard. And if different countries figure out slightly different ways of doing it, that's also fine, as long as they all have the necessary components that allow you to go about in the world. So Dilip Soman, our friend, in fact, one of your students, I think, was he not, um, up in, uh, in in Canada, has written about this sort of the last mile problem, which I think often is behavioural. And it does apply to vaccines, it would seem, and a lot of medical issues where even if a treatment is developed, people feel like, well, that's it. We've, we've made it, haven't we? But vaccines illustrate this quite well, that that isn't enough to, to do it. In fact, we did trial, you may know, on tuberculosis, where a lot of people don't, in fact, more than a million people a year die because they don't persist with the treatment. So, I mean, what are the other kind of thoughts? You want to talk more generally about this issue. Maya, you might also want to have examples from your earlier work where we try and use behavioral science to buttress or support or deal with this last mile issue to get what seems like effective medical treatment, but might not be used by humans as opposed to econs. A good illustration of this is we've had tremendous success at helping people save more for retirement program in the UK is one of the great victories. And we've made almost no progress on helping people deal with retirement and figuring out how to make use of whatever you've saved up is a much harder problem than figuring out how much to save. And we're giving people almost no help on that. And I think I don't know whether that's a final mile problem, but it's a final 
20 or 30 years, one hopes. And it's a good example where we've stopped short of the full solution. The one thing I'd add there is I think we've, as behavioral scientists, done a very good job at bridging intention-action gaps. So when we know someone does, in fact, want to get a flu shot, you know, getting them to write down where, when, and how they're going to get it is successful. When we know a military service member wants to sign up for a retirement savings plan, we, we figured out how to streamline the process, make it more likely they sign up. We're still you know, in the dark when it comes to how to really effectively change people's minds about something. Um, certainly in the U.S., where the vaccine has become deeply politicized and the coronavirus has become deeply politicized, where people feel that they are maybe threatening their tribal membership if they have a certain view on the vaccine or on the virus more generally exists. So I, I think I think we have to th- try and confront this much larger problem, which is you know, how do, how do you actually change people's minds about something, uh, not simply some of these lighter behaviors? One of the issues that economists have wrestled with is preferences. So there's sort of a presumption, you know, reveal preferences and people know what they want. And the original um, nudge book talked about happiness too. And one of the puzzles is what happens if people don't know what makes them happy? Or if their express preference, if they're clicking on an app or whatever it would be, isn't the same when, if you separate them from it. And how do we handle this kind of problem, particularly as a good Chicago economist? What do we do with this? the fact that individuals have not only inconsistent preferences, but almost layers of preferences which might not hang together? Yeah, I, I think this is a real problem. Let's take one example, which is screen addiction. Many people say that they spend too much time looking at their phone. Now, of course, in a, in a neoclassical economic world, that can't happen. You spend the optimal amount of time looking at your phone. And if you're spending a lot of time looking at it, it must be because you want to. But when people say they're spending too much time looking at their phone, it does mean something. Uh, Most people aren't saying that they're spending too much time on the treadmill or reading books that educate them. So if people are uncomfortable with the choices that they're making, then it can be difficult to know which direction that they should be nudged. So I found it, I was pretty comfortable with automatically enrolling people into a pension plan because it was pretty clear to me that that would make them better off and the costs of opting out were low. And the cost of saving too much were low. You can retire early or drink better wine when you're an old geezer like me. But in other situations, we don't really know. And, you know, our, our friend and mentor, Danny Kahneman, has spent a lot of time trying to measure happiness. But I think that's a really hard problem. Our people who are spending four hours a day looking at their phone made more or less happy. I'm comfortable giving them the tools. So on my phone, I get a report about how much time I've spent on various apps. We could make that more prominent. And I think I have the choice of doing that, though whether I would figure out how to do it is another question. But I mean, I think you're, you're raising a very good point. And we shouldn't be presumptuous 
that we always know which direction to nudge people. And, you know, sometimes we can ask, but then we're not sure that, that people know the correct answer. Um, yeah, I think that's completely right, Richard. And I was going to say, you know, another seemingly instrumental challenge when it comes to happiness research is that we have this experiential versus reflective happiness construct, and sometimes those two are in opposition with one another. And the reflective happiness piece just takes a long time to measure because definitionally it is about your reflected happiness. So you, in, in order to get a, a you know, substantive amount of data in that area to draw meaningful conclusions, you need to study people over the course of their lifetime, right? Checking in at the 30-year mark and the 50-year mark and the 70-year mark. And I think that's, I think the moment-to-moment -moment stuff is obviously much easier to grasp and it's much easier to measure and and try to see uh, deltas with, with intervention, but it's, it's just much harder in, in the reflective space. Definitely. One of the arguments sometimes made about behavioral economics and even behavioral um, science in general is that it's wrestled with kind of issues to do with heuristics and statistical probability, the bat and ball problem or whatever. And maybe we can sign much better to faults and heuristics so that people don't have to wrestle through lots of pensions. And the thing we should, you know, get that dealt with by machines or whatever, have not have to do a Swedish style um, pension system, which you revisit with enormous detail in the new book, um, Richard. And then we could just ask people the things they care about, which is what do you want to do with the money? Do you want to, what do you want to give it to your grandchildren or go on a holiday? Liz again. Heuristics is a term for the mental shortcuts we use when making decisions, particularly when we're thinking fast. For example, we judge the probability of being eaten by a shark based on how readily examples of shark attacks come to mind, and not the true and thankfully remote statistical probability. These heuristics enable us to function in a complex and fast-paced world, but they also leave us prone to systematic errors in our decision-making. But one of the questions is, if people can't predict necessarily even what will make them happy, then should we be looking for the faults which are also doing that as well? I don't know. It's a, it is quite profound, right? Well, let me pick up on that with the example I was giving before about retirement consumption. The way financial advisors deal with that problem is to give people a questionnaire about risk attitudes. And that questionnaire is approximately useless. And the reason is, as we've been discussing, people don't really know what their risk attitudes are. And they have no idea how they're going to react when the market goes down 40% in two months, as it did earlier this year. So I think you have to give people easier questions. And so, for example, a question people may be able to answer is, how much money do they need to have invested in something safe for them to be able to sleep well at night? And now do the asset allocation problem starting with that. Okay, we're going to put a, away 18 months of income in, in something very safe, and then we're going to invest the rest in gradually riskier things. So transfer posing from hard ones into easier ones. There's an art to that. And in that case, you know, we're using some mental accounting, but the, the number of, of ways of doing that are, are infinite. And it sort of shows that there's a lot of art to this. The choice architect can't just use a checklist of, 
here are my five favorite nudges. Let's see which one applies. They have to really try to understand what the problem is and how people are seeing it and what are they missing and what's the, what's the problem we're trying to help them overcome. And, you know, if it's something like school lunches or food stamps, we're pretty sure that they would like to be in that and that it's just sludge that's keeping them out. But for these other things, should somebody get the vaccine and when? I think it's presumptuous of us to say we know the answer to that for everyone. We can try to make it easy for people to get it, easy for them to remember to get the second dose and give them some benefits for doing it and uh, then let people choose. Now, we're almost at time. I just want to ask a couple of fun last questions if I could. Maya, now, you've done some amazing things already, but you were supposed to be a concert violinist. Isn't that right? Uh, how Can you just talk us through that? What's the pros and cons of working for a big tech giant or in the White House versus being a concert violinist? <laughs> yeah, I, I grew up playing violin, started when I was six, and when I was nine, things got more serious. Uh, I started studying at Juilliard at that point and was going every single week from... Connecticut to New York and really dreaming of becoming a, a violinist one day. And then when I was 15, a, a sudden hand injury kind of derailed the whole thing. And I was told I could never play again. And I was pretty despondent. And then fortunately, the summer before college, I was helping my parents clean their basement. And I stumbled upon a book by Steven Pinker called The Language Instinct. And I just found it absolutely fascinating. I, I'd always taken my ability to understand and uh, speak language for granted. I'd taken everyone, you know, large number of other people's abilities to do that also for granted and to learn that it was the result of really complex cognitive architecture. I, I just found that totally riveting. And I remember thinking, ooh, if this is what underlies language, then, you know, what underlies even higher order abilities like, you know, mathematics? Well, maybe not for me. I, my, my dad's a theoretical physicist, but I didn't get the physics genes. But for other people who are <laughs> amazing mathematicians, how the hell do they do it? Uh, or, you know, what's involved when it comes to complex decision making? And so I, I was lucky that my undergraduate institution offered a cognitive science program. It was the first at the time, one of the first at the time. And it allowed you to study the mind through an interdisciplinary perspective. So I, I was taking classes in not just neuroscience and psychology, but also in linguistics, philosophy, computer science, anthropology. The idea was to ask a central question about the mind and then approach the answer from all of these varied perspectives. I can't say I prefer one world over the other. Being being a musician was really lovely, but I am glad that I'm in a less socially isolated sport, so to speak, <laughs> and that today I get to work on, you know, in these incredible teams and and see a lot of uh, impact from the work we do. So grateful for that. It's interesting to think about, suppose Maya's hand hadn't been injured, what sort of advice should her parents have been giving her? And I think there's a trap that if you're very talented in something like music or sports, that you feel like you have to go for it as far as your talents take you. And I have no idea what Maya's violinist career would have been, but it's unlikely that it would have exceeded 
what she's accomplished with with this life and i don't know how i mean it, it's related to what we were just talking about in terms of what sort of advice would you give certainly you'd want to be asking her how comfortable are you spending eight hours a day completely by yourself playing the same thing over and over again? It's likely that a 15-year-old doesn't think as much about that and instead thinks about standing on the stage at Carnegie Hall and to thunderous applause. I'm happy, I'm happy you hurt your hand, Maya. <laughs> I, I appreciate that, Richard. Very, very kind of you. But um, you've you know long you've been this kind of rebel in economics and misbehaving captures that and so on. But I was thinking, well, come on, you've won the Nobel Prize and so on and so on. You've been president of the American Association for Economics, et cetera, et cetera. Didn't you win? Isn't didn't the lunatics take over the asylum? Is it all done and dusted? Well, look, there are always new people to annoy, David. So, <laughs> you know, um, the, the 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 column I wrote last week which had the, I think, sound and popular idea of giving vaccine recipients a health passport, also included an idea I'm quite fond of, but will not be universally loved, which is to take a small portion of the vaccines and conduct what I call the charity auction to allow the rich and famous to pay a price to jump the line rather than to pay some intermediary that's going to get them to the front of the line in another way. You know, I, I think it's unlikely anyone will adopt that policy. Uh, so why did I write about it? I think it gets people thinking, and, and that's useful. You know, I, I think economics has changed, but it, not as much as it should, especially if you look at principles of economics textbooks. They are 10% different than they were 20 years ago. So what's now, it's now okay to be a behavioral economist. There are people who have, well, there have been several Nobels and several Clark Medal winners, which is a prize given to the best economist under the age of 40. And lots of smart young people are doing it. But it's still not part of the normal toolkit. And it, it will take the people of Maya's generation and younger to accomplish that. So risk of pushing my luck, I was going to ask one last one, as you partly inspired by that answer, Richard. And Maya, you might also want to give an answer to it too. But of course, the world has been gripped by COVID, a terrible kind of shockwave, but it's also created economic shockwaves too. One of the arguments might be made is some countries went off in different directions on the, on how to handle the disease and so on, some with more success than others. But arguably, the same will happen with economic policy. So countries have been saddled with, in many cases, huge surges in their debt and so on. And I wonder if you think that there might be errors baked into or, or assumptions into economic policy or social policy or responses, which are going to make us misstep that you would caution and say, watch out for this prior that might be in the way. Like there's some other policy option beyond auctions and so on that you might want to, you know, draw out. Well, I think, you know, one, 
one branch of economics that has not been changed much, and there's very little behavioral, is macroeconomics. And there are lots of reasons for that. One of the reasons is there's, in some sense, not very much data. And that sounds like an odd thing to say, since governments are publishing uh, reams and reams of data about, about the economy. But there aren't that many recessions. You know, N might be 10. And I've suggested to several central bankers that in the next crisis, we should assign monetary responses at random so that we can really learn. <laughs> and so far, uh, not one of them has even thought this was an amusing suggestion. In some sense, we have a better chance of learning from COVID because, because people were so in the dark early on about what to do. And since responses were so varied, at least after the fact, I think it will be possible to learn some things. At least I hope so. Great. Maya, you need to drop off. I think we're all kind of at time. Is there anything you want to um, say before you drop off? Yeah, I think it's wonderful that you all are celebrating 10 years of Nudge. <laughs> I was obviously very moved by the book, and it continues to be the book I recommend to just about everybody who asks me for recommendations of things to read uh, when it comes to learning about the application of a behavioral science to policy. So I guess cheers to another good 10 years. Thank you. I still remember our train ride to Paris, David, which is what when we met. And that was the start of an interesting adventure. And I hope one day to come back to London and to continue. Thanks, Richard. Okay, Great. David. Great to talk to you. And Thank you Maya, so much. Thanks for hurting your heart. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that again. All right. Well, that's the end of part two of this special edition of Inside the Nudge Unit. You can find more information and resources in the notes published with this podcast or at our website at www.bi.team. There you can also find lots more information on the first 10 years of the Behavioral Insights team. That's at bi.team forward slash bit10. I'm Liz Costa. Thanks so much for listening to Inside the Nudge Unit. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, please spread the word to your friends, and we hope you return for more episodes soon.